Uh, welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us on Colin for Unruly with Ryan and Rob. Uh, this is your co-host, Ryan Knight, and I'm excited to be joined by our other co-host, Rob Bermudez. Welcome, comrades. And uh, we have a very special guest tonight. Uh, our guest uh, tonight is Matthew uh, Ho. Matthew is the Green Party candidate running for the U.S. Senate in North Carolina. Matthew, welcome to Unruly. Hey, Ryan and Rob. Thanks for having me with you. Yeah, we, we're excited to have you. Uh, ever since we heard about what was going on in your race, uh, I, I was looking forward to having you on. Uh, so I had this, this episode circled on the calendar. Look, I'll, I'll just get right into it. You know, the Democrats uh, are notorious for giving speech after speech about how the Republicans are engaging in voter suppression and attacking democracy. But it turns out that the Democrats are also guilty of the very thing they accuse Republicans of, uh, because over the past few years, they, the Democrats have sued to kick the Green Party off the ballot in several states, and in doing so, suppress the people from having better choices uh, on Election Day at the ballot box. And most recently, the Democrats uh, have waged a campaign to, kick, to keep you off the ballot, Matthew, in, in the North Carolina Senate race, despite the fact that your campaign collected more than enough signatures uh, to be on the ballot. Matthew, let's start off with why do the Democrats want you off the ballot so bad? And how are you countering uh, this blatant attempt to rig elections against third party candidates like yourself? Yeah, you know, it's certainly not because they're they're afraid of me or, or afraid of the Green Party per se. You know, it's because they just uh, are terrified that voters will have a choice to vote for someone who represents their interests. Right. The, the idea that if we are on the ballot, voters will then have an option for, say, single payer health care, uh, affordable housing, uh, you know, just and fair and annualized, you know, living wages, action on the climate and end to the war on drugs. I mean, we could be here all night, you know, listing off all the different things that we support and that we fight for that the Democrats won't. They'll give it they'll give lip service to it. And then they'll demand that the people who are their supposed constituency, they'll demand that they accept the crumbs that they're given. And so they're terrified that there'll be an actual option, particularly one for working families on the ballot, uh, because that, you know, when you further deconstruct that, it's very clear that what they're really afraid of is that these issues are a danger to the profits of their donors. Right. And so you really get back to the whole understanding of what is the foundation of the two party system? Why do they fight so hard to protect it? Why are they so vicious and merciless to anyone else who wants to stand up and represent some part of society that's not represented? Well, it's because they need to protect the money that keeps them in power. Yeah. Everything. If you if you just follow the money, you will find all the corruption in our political system. Just a follow up question on that. And then I'll let Rob get in here. Uh, how are you fighting back against this this blatant form of, of voter suppression? Because I, I, I believe that there's a lawsuit now that you filed uh, and just kind of bring people up to speed with what's going on, because I've also been made aware that uh, the Democratic Party was using operatives to show up yeah. at people's houses. Uh, uh, people who had signed the petition, you collected uh, almost 20,000 20, signatures to get on the ballot in North Carolina. And the Democratic Party was sending operatives to people's houses, asking people who had signed your petition to get on the ballot. Uh, 
after you followed all the laws and all the rules, and they're sending people to people's homes to ask them to, to take their name off of the petition. Uh, kind of fill, fill people in what, what's been going on, this kind of sinister act that the Democrats have been waging against your campaign, and, and then how you're fighting back against them. Yeah, it really is. The the arrogance of power on full display here, their smugness and their brazenness, the things that they're doing, people who people who've been following politics for 30 years or so have said to me over and over again, I've never seen anything like this. I mean, certainly, as you're saying, Ryan, the Democrats and the Republicans, too, will do what they can to ensure that they don't have competition on the ballot. Right. So they'll they'll they'll, all there's all types of things that people know, removing voters from from roles, uh, you know, gerrymandering, making ballot access so hard that it's impossible to to ever achieve the threshold required. And for us, we needed um, 13,865 signatures to be on the ballot here in North Carolina. Um, We collected more than 22,500 signatures of that. Almost 16,000 were verified by the counties. And if people are not familiar with petitioning, um, that's about right in terms of what the average is. You can expect if you go out and collect four signatures, uh, roughly about three signatures will count. That's just the way it works, not just here in North Carolina, but across the country. You know, Ballotpedia actually has some really great information on this. If you go and look at their section on ballot access, you'll find all kinds of really really uh, helpful background information to understand how ballot access is so prohibitive. And again, it comes back to the money, you know? Um, so, but anyway, with our story, so we go in, uh, we, 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 we meet all the deadlines. We do everything, everything procedurally correct. We are almost 2,100 signatures over what we're required to have. Uh, we, you know, I'll, I'll try and keep this brief because it is complicated because there are, were so many things thrown at us by both the state of North Carolina and the Democratic Party, and they're working in collusion, and we have proof of that as well. But um, what happens is we go uh, to be certified by the North Carolina State Board of Elections, and their justification for not certifying us is that there could be, uh, that, that there could be uh, fraud and irregularities although they have never produced evidence of that and they have never uh, given any legal justification for not certifying us. And I can't be more clear than, than, than what I'm saying. They have never given any evidence and they have never provided any legal justification for not certifying us. It all has just basically been on their whim. So on a pure partisan decision, three Democrats versus two Republicans on a state board of elections, the argument was there could be, could be something wrong we don't have time to investigate it. The deadline's tomorrow, so we're not going to certify you. That was their rationale for not certifying us. So we are in court. We're the federal uh, 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 federal court for the Eastern District of North Carolina. We just filed our emergency injunction yesterday. You can go to our website. You can go to our Twitter. You know, uh, you can see, you can read the uh, the motions yourselves. And uh, we are, you know, appealing to the court uh, to immediately certify us and place our candidates on the ballot in November. Uh, you know, you mentioned the Democratic Party. Um, so this is the North Carolina State Board of Elections we're up against. We're also fighting at the same time. This is really a two front battle. It's, it's, it's really a David versus Goliath you know, multiple Goliaths here that we're up against the uh, um, the North that almost as soon as we turned in our petitions to be recognized as a party here in North Carolina, uh, the Democrat senatorial campaign mm. committee, right? So the DSCC, Chuck Schumer's outfit up in uh, D.C. and the Elias law firm, uh, which is Mark Elias's law firm. People are not familiar with him. Just Google him, look him up. He is arguably the most prominent 
uh, attorney the Democratic Party has. Uh, they were down here right after we filed our petitions. One of the things that they did was they colluded with the governor's office. They got our petition records and they started calling people, texting people and going to their homes, as Ryan was saying, in order to get them to remove their signatures from our petitions. It's more egregious than it sounds because they were actually telling people when they were calling them that they were um, with the Green Party. Uh, so they were lying about who they were when they were showing up at people's homes. They were saying they were from the secretary of state's office or the state boards of elections and trying to intimidate people to get them to remove their names. And we have all this on both audio and video. Right. So very clearly that in a, in a very deliberate uh, and calculated manner to deceive people, they lied to them. They were trying to get people to remove their names from our petitions in order to cast doubt on our petitioning process in order to lower the number of signatures we collected all hand in hand with the governor's office. And we believe the state board of elections um, to make sure that we were not going to be on the ballot. So we are in court uh, against uh, the the democratic party, the DSCC uh, put in a motion to be a co-defendant in our, in our lawsuit against the, um, the state board of elections. The judge has not, uh, as far as I know, come back and said whether or not they will be a co-defendant. However, the, the Democratic Party has made it clear that even when we win this lawsuit, they will then put up further challenges to try and keep us off the ballot. Uh, they are just very desperate to, again, make sure that people don't have the option to vote for single payer health care or to vote for affordable housing or anything else. We just I just saw the most just to give you an idea of what's like here in North Carolina. And this is the way it is across the country. I know for many people, but we just on a statewide level. Rents went up 30 percent year on year. And in my area, like in Raleigh and in other kind of more urban areas, uh, rents went up 50 percent. And they are desperate to make sure nobody is on the ballot in November who will be talking about that. Matthew, when you first decided to run, I, I know the Green Party getting sued to be kicked off ballots isn't isn't something new. We saw it happening right. in the 2020 presidential election. Did you have an idea in mind that like they're going to come after me? Or there's going to try to be some attempt. And, and how far did you think they were going to go? And how did you prepare to combat that versus what you're seeing now? We uh, yeah, we, we expected it. I expected it was going to be something along the lines like I was going to have to go to the state board of elections with my voter registration card and my driver's license and my passport and the deed to my house and everything else to prove that I actually am who I am and that I live here and everything else. I was expecting they were going to do everything they could to make to find some place where we didn't cross a T or dot an I and, and those types of challenges. Um, I, I, I don't think anyone was, was prepared for how. Uh, again, brazen, uh, the partisan um, attack on us came through the state board of elections. We were, again, not surprised about the Democratic Party, maybe a little surprised that the DSCC and Elias Law Firm came down here so quickly. You know, they, they went right to, you know, right to their closers. You know, there's no one in the bullpen for them past Elias. So they went right to that. So that was a bit of a surprise as well, I guess. But just the brazenness, Rob, of, of the, the overtness of the and the smugness, the whole that the, our experience with the uh, politically appointed people in the, the state board of elections has really been this. We don't like this. This is what we're going to do. What are you going to do about it? Right. So that smugness, that arrogance of power and a lot of people have said to us, and I don't, I don't discount this. I don't dismiss it. I don't disagree with it. That the argument that they are making, or the state board of elections here is making, is not 
dissimilar to the argument that Rudy, Rudy Giuliani and all those crooks made back in 2020 when they are trying to overturn the 2020 elections. This argument that there could be something wrong, there could be fraud. We can't show you the evidence. We don't have any proof, but there could be. So you shouldn't certify. And that's what we're dealing with here. And so as we've been saying and other people have been saying to us because they acknowledge it, the um, danger of this uh, nationally, this is an this is an issue of national significance because if they get away with what they're getting away with here, then that means that anywhere else in the country, the precedent will be set that a political party that is in power can just simply rule in its favor without any reference at all to rule of law, any reference at all to due process, you know, anything. Just on their whim, they can decide who else is on the ballot. And I know it's tenuous at best across the country. Ballot access is such a problem anyway. But this really, because it's so brazen and so overt in its partisanship, really, I think, would push it over a line that we haven't seen crossed, you know, for for, for many decades in this country. Because I'm certainly not going to pretend that this country has been a fairy tale land of pure democracy, you know, over its over its life. Yeah, that this is what I find most egregious about it. If we want to talk about fraud, the only people that are committing fraud here are the Democrats who are suppressing people's right to have voter choice on Election Day. You know, real democracy, multi-party democracy that they have in other countries, there's five, six, seven, eight, nine choices on the ballot. The Democrats want there just to be one choice, the blue corporate or two choices, the blue corporate party and the red corporate party. And it, and it ends up uh, with one result, which is the oligarchs and big business and the military industrial complex win every election and the people lose every election. Mm-hmm. And what I find just so egregious is right now, like you kind of hit on a, a little bit ago, Matthew, people in this country are struggling. Yep. The, the, the cost of living in this country is soaring at record highs. We have record inflation and wages are not keeping up. The wages are falling behind the, the cost of living. So people are seeing a, a, a negative balance in their account. They're having to live off credit cards. And there was a report uh, out yesterday by CNBC that 75% of middle-class households are saying that their income is falling behind the cost of living. Now, if 75% of the middle class are struggling, what do you think that means for for the poor and the working class? It means that they're barely holding on to survive. So we have people here who are struggling just to survive another day, and we have the Democrats who have the majority – And instead of using their majority to fight for policies to help the poor and the working class, they're using their power to keep pro-worker candidates uh, off the ballot like yourself. Uh, Matthew, uh, we need to drill down on this more. Like, What does it tell you about the Democrats that instead of fighting for better policies, they are suppressing the people from having better choices at the ballot box and suppressing – the people from from getting to vote for candidates like yourself that support single payer health care and living wages and universal housing. Well, they're, they're uh, you know, they first first say about I, I think both the Democrats and Republicans would be happy if we got to the point where the electorate consisted only of people who had Fox News or MSNBC subscriptions. Right. right. You know, I mean, that that's eventually what they want. Um, they, they want to exclude as many as possible just to the point where they are able to, um, to, to, to control a rigged system, which is something that, 
they 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 do. I mean, this this that's what they want. Um, you know, I, I look at them as vampires, man. I mean, they're absolute vampires. Uh, they have, as you you so rightly described, if the middle class is saying this, and I don't even know. I think our terminology is is, is lost now. Uh, this idea that somehow there's a middle class, a working class, lower incomes um, is really bedeviled by the fact that. Uh, the financialization policies of the last five decades have have just sucked and sucked and sucked uh, the money and the financial life out of ever increasing numbers of American families. So that the, the idea that somehow there's a difference between working class and middle class, I understand that there is. But when you have those things, like 75 percent of middle class are struggling. News Nation had a poll a month or so ago. Sixty six percent of Americans said that they were living paycheck to paycheck. You know, it's two thirds. Like, how do you, when you're, you're talking uh, things like that, how do you actually delineate between different classes? You really start to get back to this idea of a 99%. Um, but, uh, you know, it is, they, but they are vampires and they are vampires who are doing the, 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 the bidding of the, the oligarchs, the, the, the financial and economic structure of this country to make sure that all the money goes to the top, right? I mean, so with, with the issue with wages, we've seen wages decrease for five decades. My entire life, I was born in 1973. So I was born right when Nixon and his people were putting into a lot of these initial neoliberal policies, you know, uh, the strong, a strong dollar, uh, taking us off the gold standard, all those things, right, that pushed wages down. And that continued for decades. And then the idea, well, how are workers going to afford anything? Well, they're going to use credit. Right. And that just means more money's going to the top. And now you're at this point, as you're describing, where people don't even have credit anymore. Right. People don't even have the wherewithal to, 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 to utilize credit because their credit's already being used up. We see here in North Carolina. I had to look this up because I didn't believe it. But you can look it up yourself. You go to the Urban Institute and they had a study that came out a month or so ago. And one in four now North Carolinian adults are in collections for medical debt. Collections, not in medical debt, but in collections for medical debt. I mean, take away, guys, the idea that that's morally abhorrent, right? Take away the idea of where's the justice in that. Don't even consider that stuff. Just look at it from the pure calculus of like, how is that sustainable? How is it sustainable to have an economy and a society where one in four of your adults are in collections for medical debt? Uh, you know, let alone all the other debt that's out there and all the other issues and everything else. How is that sustainable? But that's what this is. This is I think of it in the sense of, of, of you know, uh, you know, you're squeezing a, a thing, a toothpaste and you just kind of keep squeezing it higher and higher. And so as that demand for more money to go to the top, right, more that, that those financialization policies continue to suck from everybody else, you know, it, 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 it hits into the middle class now and has been for a while. And that's yeah. why, as you said, Ryan, yeah, this this notion that three quarters of the middle class can't keep up. Uh, and, you know, where is this heading to? And it's only getting worse. And we haven't even broached the whole aspect of how the climate catastrophe is going to play into all this. Yeah, well, we know where it's heading. It's heading for a collapse. The, the problem is, though, is when it collapses, what ends up happening is because both parties are owned by big business and uh, the billionaire class. Whenever there's a collapse, like we had in 2008, when, when the financial markets collapsed, what happens? The entire uh, capitalist state, the United States government, uh, bails out the very people who crashed the economy uh, and, and engaged in the, in the risky speculation. Uh, 
And so that's what will happen again. If we continue to allow ourselves to be ruled by these two corrupt corporate parties, the market will collapse and 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 the both parties will bail out uh, the people who who control and own them, which is which is their corporate donors and Wall Street. And uh, it will, what we'll see is just like we actually saw in the pandemic is there will be another wealth transfer. You know, they use these kind of boom bust cycles that capitalism uh, creates and they use it. So so. Every time the working class can build up a little bit of money, you know, over 10 yeah. year, over a 10, 20 year period, what ends up happening, the market ends up collapsing and, it, and people lose everything like they did in 2008, like they did uh, uh, during the pandemic. And then uh, both parties use these, these, these periods of, 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 of struggle to actually just bail out and transfer more wealth up to the top. It's absolutely insanity. And what's, what's most insane about it is we know that it's a, that it's going to happen again. And, and, and until the people come together and we break the cycle, it's going to continue to happen. Right. Right. We, we see, you know, you see it too, in the things of, of um, it, it's so insidious and what we're up against is, you know, uh, we have this epidemic here, and I'm sure other folks around the country have it, where corporations are purchasing homes, particularly, you know, what are considered entry level homes, right? Yep. The homes that uh, a, a young a young family or, or you know, would, would, would and, and they're purchasing them and, of course, jacking the rents up and everything else. And, you know, in our area here, one in five homes last year were sold, were purchased by corporations, probably even more than that. The genesis of all that. You know, is that when those 12 million American families lost their home, Obama was president and he chose to bail out the banks rather than do anything for them. The banks took all that bailout money or not all of it. They took some of that bailout money and they started buying up those foreclosed homes. And that creates this industry, uh, you know, this sub industry among the banks of, of this, this, this corporate home purchasing program and then turning them into rentals. That's really has developed over these, these years. So now we're seeing that it's happening on a horrible effect on the ability of of people to purchase a home uh, you know and, and and that genesis comes back from goes back to what you were describing the bailout of the banks so it's it, it's it, you know the the aspects of this i don't think they're going to let the markets fail again i mean we saw what happened and we and still is happening uh with uh, you know as they call it, the quantitative easing right the for the last couple of years now we've had uh, anywhere from 80 to 120 billion dollars a month being injected into the asset markets by the fed you know what i mean so the amount of money that they're pumping in already to keep this thing afloat while exactly working families can't afford to buy a home they can i mean the average new car the average monthly payment for a new car in the united states is 700 dollars a month i mean that's just that's just how how is that possible you know, and we're talking about things that. And even be- if people can buy a home or a car, they don't own their home or car. The right. bank owns it. The majority right. of people, that's what, I mean, we live in right. a society where we're all in debt. Right. <laughs> the majority right. of Americans, even if you are lucky enough to be able to purchase a home, the bank owns you. You know right. what I mean? Like, uh, so it's, right. it's just, and- it's, it's, we're in a very precarious situation. I want to get to uh, Amanda, uh, who has a question for you. Let's let's take her in, and, and I know Robin and I probably have more questions as well, but let's hear from Amanda. Uh, Amanda, go ahead and uh, unmute yourself and uh, ask Matthew a question. Hi. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Amanda. I, I appreciate your, your take on the housing market. Um, I just want to add an additional texture to it which is the the newest bubble is coming from 
Um, it's called Prop Tech, which is these um, like they Zillow mm -hmm. because they've got the algorithms and they know all the prices. They're buying them up by algorithm. So so they buy it up and then two weeks later they flip it for forty thousand dollars seventy thousand dollars more and because because actual people can't bid as good or have the cash like these companies that now have all these real estate holdings that they're turning over daily as an asset class that I, this is like the thing that has me most, I pay attention to a lot of stuff going on, including the international horrors that are happening. And this is the thing that has me most worried about not being able to undo once there is no, there's nobody left that owns a home because the people who are in office, most of them own a home, right? They, this isn't affecting them. They don't notice it happening, but it is a epidemic. And um, it, I, there was a very good recent episode of, um, um, I'm looking at the name of Millennials Killing Capitalism, and that's not the right one. Um, uh, I'll put it into the chat. There's a, it's a really good about hour long podcast that with all kinds of resources about the this prop tech bubble and and what's going on with property because it's not just the banks foreclosing anymore it's this new prop tech thing yeah right i mean there, there's there's evidence that some of these companies will go into it will target a, a particular area and they will purchase multiple homes in that area uh, at increasing prices in order to drive up the price in the neighborhood, right? In order to drive up the comps, right? If anyone's ever purchased a home, you, what are the comps? You know, what you know, what what are comparable housing prices? And the idea being is, and it's all done through the the under the algorithm, right? I mean, all using that technology to do it in a manner that is, um, you know, a, a, a very uh, intelligent, I guess, for lack of a better term. And you know, exactly driving those prices up. So that when they then want to turn around and flip those homes, the prices of the homes in that area have been drastically inflated because of their own purchasing. And, yeah, it is incredibly uh, 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 disruptive, incredibly unfair. And it is, you know, destroying the hopes of, of people, uh, you know, who want to get into their own property. But also, too, the, 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 you know, it also has a tremendous effect on the rental market. You know, for so for the tens and tens of millions of people who, who are renters and I've been a, you know, I, I've been a renter most of my life and, you know, not now, but most of my life I have been. And that idea of every year, maybe your rent's going to go up and you're not going to be able to afford it is terrifying. And that's exactly what's what has been constructed and is and is accelerating. And you're right. You, the danger is we're going to get to the point where nobody or only the wealthiest or only the well-to-do or only those in power are going to own their homes. And certainly working families are not going to own their homes. And more to the point, as, as Ryan said, you know, it doesn't matter because you, you're talking about owing it to the bank, whether it's your car, your home, whatever it is. And, you know, I mean, you get it. And that doesn't even, we haven't even broached on, we were talking kind of a big economic stuff before. We haven't even broached on the whole use of interest rates to right. uh, uh, really punish people, which is what they're going to be doing now going forward. 
So, so the, the podcast is called This Machine Kills, and it's the episode mm. um, from, it looks like, July 9th this year. It's a, it's a very, okay, thank you. very, it's a very good explanation that's clear, but goes into enough of the technical detail that I think it will be a good resource. Cause I ha having, having had my home stolen under the robo signing shit that was going on in, in 2009, 2010 and not being able to do anything about it and watching a lot of other people with this housing issue. I'm glad that it's on your mind too. Yeah. Thank oh, yeah. you so much yeah. about that, Amanda. It's, I, this is a, a huge problem right now. Uh, I've, I've, we talked a little bit about the housing crisis a few weeks ago uh, on the podcast, but uh, these corporations, I mean, they own our healthcare. Now they're going to own all the houses and, and all the right. properties. You know, they, they, I mean, we're supposed to be the land of the free, you know, what happened to that? I mean, we're the land of uh, being owned by corporations and, and greedy billionaires and the corrupt politicians who do their bidding. I mean, none of us are free at the end of the day. Like we are ruled by these giant corporations. And what I find most crazy about all of this is how kind of in America where the American people are kind of taught to worship the very corporations and billionaires mm. and politicians who are screwing us all over. Like it's insane to me that anyone would would wor worship an oligarch like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. You know, these are the people who are uh, shipping our jobs overseas, who are not paying workers a living wage, who are, you know, these are the people who are exploiting the working class, who are uh now Amazon is buying up healthcare uh, uh health insurance uh, corporations. I mean, so we're at a space now where they're going to own our healthcare, they're going to own our food supply, they're going to own water, our water, um, our energy, uh, our our homes, and so I, I just think it, it's it's this illusion, uh, uh, these kind of fairy tales of democracy that they spin on corporate media, and this illusion of democracy. That, that's never really existed here, right? Like we are not a democracy. The, a democracy means the people have power over, uh, over the laws that are passed. Uh, we have no power over the laws that are passed. Every law that get, that, that gets passed in this country, uh, was influenced by corporate lobbyists and the corporate mm -hmm. money that put, uh, both of these uh, parties in, into power. So, uh, you know, we are so far away from, from anything that resembles dignity and justice for all people. But that is why uh, I'm excited to have Matthew on tonight, because I think if there's a way, if there's a, a little crack, a little crevices in, it's it's getting in, a, in someone like Matthew to office. So we can expose to even a bigger audience uh, just how corrupt our system is and how it's going to take a massive grassroots effort uh, and a massive uh, mobilization of the people to fight back for what we all deserve. Yeah, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about right now, I have thought about because I am a homeowner. But the reason why I'm a, I'm a homeowner is, um, well, one, I got my house. I was lucky to get it before it got too expensive. It, you know, I wouldn't be able to afford it now, say. But the um, uh, reason why is because of of my uh, because of the Veterans Administration, 
right? I'm able, I mean, I have uh, backing from them financially. It helps with the banking. You know, I have preferred rates, et cetera, et cetera, as well as too, when, you know, I have a disability from my time in the Marine Corps, you know, so I wasn't able to work for years and the VA was able to, to support me during that time. You know, so the reason why I own a home is because of government programs that were structured to help people, to make things fair, to make things just, to give people an opportunity to succeed, right? So I I am living a a life that I understand I have because of government programs that were put in place to help. And, you know, that's one of the things I always come back to is what are we doing here? We we have for, 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 you know, we don't have to go that far back. Again, I, I go back to Nixon. We have had for 50 years deliberate government policies that have been put in place to make sure that Wall Street, the banks, the corporations, the wealthy win, that through tax codes, through regulations, through subsidies, through busting the unions, whatever it may be, everything has been designed over the last 50 years to make sure they win. And the idea is how do we take it over so that we make sure that the working family, the working person, the average person in the United States wins just as the corporations and the banks have won for way too long now. So, Matthew, let's let's fast forward to a year from now. You've been elected to Congress. You are, uh, dare I say, one of the lone voices of reason. What are some of your legislative priorities and, and how do you think being, you know, such a, a small minority going up against, you know, Democrats and Republicans alike that will be fighting this type of legislation? How, how would you fight to to break through the gridlock and actually make sure meaningful legislation uh, can get passed? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, God, man, you know, Rob, there's, there's so much, there's, there's such an urgency to so much. And, you know, uh, the idea that you, the idea that there is uh, one or two things that must be done right away when there really are a hundred things that must be done right away. But, you know, a lot of it for me comes to healthcare because we are losing people every day in this country because they don't have healthcare. You know, I mean, another aspect is, is, is of course climate. Because, you know, it, it's all going to be for naught if, if, if we don't do something to mitigate. And I, I'm, I'm in the camp that's growing that says, you know what, it's, it's, we, are, we are way too late, right? And uh, the best we can do is have some mitigation. But really what we should be doing is trying to structure our society to absorb the impact of that climate collapse, the collapse that we're already experiencing, you know. Um, so, I mean, there's those things. Ending the war on drugs is something that's so important to me because I've seen the effects of mass incarceration as well as the overdose deaths. You know, I've known I've known a lot of people who've overdosed and died. Uh, you know, I mean, it could be your combat veteran. It, it kind of comes with the territory for that. You know, so the idea of being in, in the Senate, not being part of either caucus, you know, truly being independent. Um, and not having the concerns or the requirements to report to a Chuck Schumer or Mitch McConnell. And the way that, as most people know, you see with Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema, the way they're able to disrupt things, although we can have a conversation as to whether or not they're actually independent or are they a rotating villain, right? I mean, it, it, I, I think most of us probably agree. It's the latter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, I mean, the idea, though, is that, look, and I've said this before, um, I'm not going there to, to, to make any friends. I hate it up there. I, I don't like those people. I've worked with them plenty of times. I, I'll channel Franklin and Roosevelt and say, you know, because, you know, they, they, they particularly Wall Street hated Roosevelt. Um, 
and it could, you know, he would say, I welcome their hatred, you know, and that's how I feel up there about them up there as well. Like I, I welcome their hatred. They are not going to get 15. If I'm a U.S. Senator, they are not going to get $15 billion aircraft carriers uh, if we're not getting health care. I mean, it will be that type of disruption where I don't care if, if nothing happens in the Senate for six years, if it just maintains the status quo, because that's what it's going to do anyway. So might as well disrupt it and make it so bad that um, the disruption is painful to their interests. And then because the disruption is so bad, that is the clarion call. That is the rallying call to bring others. And that provides for the soapbox. Right. That fight, that David versus Goliath fight. And we're, we're experiencing that right now. I mean, we are getting we're getting a lot of support. Look, I, I probably wouldn't be on talking with you guys right now. I probably wouldn't have been on with other folks, you know, uh, these last few weeks if the North Carolina State Board of Elections had just certified us and let us run in November. But because of the, their arrogance, they chose not to do that because they were so angry that we had the temerity to stand up to them. Right. So, I mean, it, it's using that soapbox, using that type of communication to be a disruptor and to just make things hurt for the system so that one people rally around you because they see what you're doing is, is just right. So you're continuing to build. And, and there's a lot of people out there who've been doing this for a long time. And so, you know, build on what they're doing with that disruption. And then on the other side of it, make it so painful that they have to give in on some things like I don't really care. I, I couldn't care less. Who brings us to single payer health care? That could be, you know, that Mitch McConnell could do it. I don't care as long as our people stop hurting. I mean, I have just like I'm sure you guys do. I, the reason I'm doing this is because of people in my life who are suffering. I have people in my life. My, my, my you know, she's never going to listen to this. My housemate who lives with me, you know, uh, she has to check her checking account before she goes to the doctor. You know, and I've got many other people in my life who are living that way as well. And I know people listening to this have that. The majority of the country. Majority of the country. Yeah, the suffering. You know, sometimes we forget. I mean, the the, they our corporate media has has done uh, such a good job of manufacturing consent and and getting you know the people who tune into MSNBC and tune into Fox News getting these this audience to think that like this is the reality when the truth is the reality is the majority of the american people are struggling the majority of the american people um you know don't vote for either party you know the majority of the uh, the available electorate the biggest uh elect the, the biggest voter is the non-voter right there's something like over right. 100 million people don't vote right. and before i kind of understood how corrupt our political system was, I used to think like, you know, me of four to six years ago, be like, oh, shame on them for not voting. Well, no, the truth is that these people don't vote because they understand they're smart. They know that like it doesn't matter in this duopoly who you vote for, because either both parties don't work for the people. They work for the, the ruling class. So they understand that they're screwed either way. So I think so much of this is giving people a path, right? Giving people right. Um, a, a movement that they can fight and direction and, and that they can fight to improve their lives. And this brings me kind of to my next question. Uh, there's a recent Gallup poll that found that 62% of U.S. adults believe that the Democratic and Republican parties are doing such a poor job of representing the people that we need a new party. So the hunger and desire is there for a viable third party. Matthew, what do you think the Green Party has to do better to step up and really become that viable third party that the people are looking for? 
Yeah, you know, that's, that, that, that's, uh, and we saw that when we were out there. We talked to tens of thousands of people this spring when we were petitioning, and we were, that's what we were met with. You know, I had people ask me, like, what do people talk to you about there? Are they talking about Ukraine? Are they talking about, no, no. I mean, certainly people are talking about prices and housing and gas costs and things like that. But, you know, I mean, what we were met with over and over again was the need for something different, the need for some other option. I mean, I have conservatives say to me, um, look, I, you're a socialist. I'm a conservative. I'm never voting for you, but you need to be on the ballot. You know, we would, the most partisan place we petitioned at was because the last two weeks of our, of our petitioning period overlapped with our early primary voting here in North Carolina. So we were at the polling places petitioning. So people who would literally, I mean, literally three or four minutes before filled out a Republican or a Democratic primary ballot we would meet them in the parking lot and they would sign our petition to get us onto the ballot. I mean, like, so even in those partisan spaces, we were being met with an enthusiasm for more options, for a multi-party democracy, for something different. And, you know, I, I think, um, you know, when, when I look at this and what should we be doing more and better, with the, the, you know, is this idea that we have to keep in mind in our strategy and where it derives, what that means in terms of how do we actually function and how do we actually fill out and form. And what I come back to over and over again is this idea that, you know, and others have said this much better than I, and, and certainly, uh, you know, uh, stealing wise words and ideas from other people. Uh, but, um, you know, the idea that a political party cannot be a, a, a force unto itself. It cannot be a purpose unto itself. It has to be part of a larger movement. It, it can only be, you know, one arm or one appendage of a larger body. And that, that, larger body has to include things like, you know, direct action and civil disobedience, uh, you know, labor organizing, communications and media, community and mutual aid, you know, a whole host of things. And that the, the party must, the political party must just simply be that arm, must just simply be its political operation. And so we have to, as a political party, tie into that. We have to be more ensconced with the movement on the left, with a working families movement, with people who are out there organizing, with people who are out eating, with people who are out there hitting the streets and putting their bodies on the line. It all must be tied together and we all must work together as a coherent body. And this is where I come back to the work that you guys are doing, why I say your work is the most important, because in that body, you all. Uh, and people like you and independent, independent media are the nucleus around which everything flows. Because without your communication, without your media, without your information, your education, we're all just different parts that are never going to align and never going to work together and never going to cooperate. So that's why I come back to what you guys are doing is so important. But as a political party, we have to really make sure we are subservient to the interests of the constituency, of that larger body. And I, I don't know, I don't think that's been done very well here in the United States. I mean, I think you've got to go back a very long time to find that because we see so often that our movements in the United States are distinct from the political parties. I mean, civil rights movement, things like that, right, that are distinct from the political parties. And if the political party is not subservient to those movements, then, of course, it's going to be a corrupt, compromised and selfish party. And so I think we have to get more in line with that. And, you know, I, I think of what's a, what you see, how parties operate in other parts of the world, say South America, you know, uh, parts of, of Europe, certainly the Middle East. Uh, and you have this idea of, OK, this must be a larger movement, again, of which the political party is just one appendage.
So if we have someone in our, our audience right now who's, you know, questioning maybe I should run for political office and they want to run third party, whether it's Green Party or, or just anything outside of the, the duopoly candidates, what would be your advice to them? What what should they be looking out for? What's the most effective way that they can help their community, give them the best chance to win so that it doesn't just feel like, well, again, it's going to come down to a, a red or a blue corporatist. Right. Um you know, one is uh, um, don't come into it thinking that you're only going to do this one time and that's it. Like, I'm going to do my part run and because it, it does. It, I don't think it works that way. I think the amount of experience that you need to build in this, and I'm saying this is a first time political candidate, right, um, that the experience you need to build and develop and grow upon is uh, dependent upon multiple times doing this uh i'd also say too you have to have a very good team you have to have that organization and you have to build um you know at at the local level the state level and eventually a national level of course but you have to have that support you've got to have that infrastructure you got to have someone who can be a campaign manager you got to have someone who could be a treasurer you got to have someone who can do your media someone who does well with social media if you don't have those things you can't be an effective candidate. I mean, certainly there are people who can do it like that, but what, what I say generally. So it, it, it's like one, the mindset of why are you doing this and how long of a haul am I in for? And what do I see as my goals being not just during the campaign, but post campaign? You know, one of the things I talk about a lot is that one of the goals I want for my campaign is that as uh, when the, when the race is over in November, that we are passing off a skeleton to the North Carolina Green Party that they can then fill out to organize and uh, 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 operate here in North Carolina because it's, it's a pretty much a new party here. I mean, there's some really great people, but it's not big. And so can this statewide campaign, because we have people throughout the state or regional, everything else, can that then form a skeleton for the party to continue forward with? You know, so it's like that's kind of the things I would say to someone who's considering running is that, you're, you know, your end date can't be November 8th. You know, you got to think long term. What are you trying to build? What are you trying to accomplish? And then the other thing, too, is, yeah, be prepared going into it um, with your team already in place. And none of this bullshit about building an airplane in flight or ant nonsense I hear. You know, I mean, you have to go into this with, look, none of us have the resources that we're going up against in terms of our adversaries. And we have to do this asymmetrically. And I, I really like the idea of uh, we're right. And I've used it myself, the idea that we're finding a crack. Right. And so what do you do when you find a crack? You jam a chisel into it and then you get the biggest dude around with a sledgehammer and he hammers at it, you know, and we are all that biggest dude. Right. Like, how do we how do we how do we make that uh, motif uh, or that analogy real? Right. So we all. So how, what are you doing to mass your effort into a crack in order to exploit what we can uh, against our adversaries? Because we have to fight asymmetrically. We can't just run headlong into the Democratic and Republican parties. I mean, that's that's insane. You know, so but they are beatable and history teaches that they're beatable. So we just have to be very calculated about this. And, uh, you know, the final thing is the enthusiasm. I would say when running, you know, make sure that you have your emotional and spiritual support to get through this, all the things that you're going to do to keep yourself inspired, because it is difficult work. It is, you know, it is, it is, uh, 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 it's not very rewarding in the sense of, of how our society traditionally uh, doles out rewards. 
uh, which kind of ties back into a whole other conversation we're just having about economics and everything. But yeah, so I think those that's what I would say to folks and anyone who's listening who wants to talk to someone who's, again, first-time candidate who's doing this, yeah, please reach out to me on Twitter or Facebook. I'm happy to talk to you about it. Uh, you said something earlier that, that kind of sparked my attention, uh, Matthew, when you started talking about how the Democrats doing this and, and uh, very backhandedly uh, not allowing you to be on the ballot has brought more attention to uh, your campaign, um, more attention to this race. Uh, do you think that, you know, because every, everyone has a weakness and every and, and organizations uh, like the Democrats and Republicans who are just corrupt to the core, they might they have a lot of power. They get their strength from the power, from the money that they, they take from from large corporations and from from billionaire uh, billionaire class interests. But do you think that the Democrats smugness and this idea that, oh, you know, we live in a two party system, that's all it will ever be this kind of they, they think they're. Uh, they, they think they're invulnerable. They think that 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 this is going to go on forever. That they're going to be allowed to use our government to enrich themselves and enrich their corporate donors. Do you think that arrogance and that smugness is is backfiring on the Democrats? And is that kind of the way we need to start going after them? Uh, because obviously they 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 see you as a threat. They wouldn't you know send their their big they wouldn't send Hillary Clinton's former lawyer and lackey after you if they didn't see you as a threat. So do you think that that you know we're going to reach a point here pretty soon where you know the Democrats think in the DNC they're this powerful organization they you know they raised 7 billion dollars in the 2020 cycle uh, which is more than the Republicans. They think they're unbeatable, but do you think that arrogance is going to lead to their downfall and and, and is something we can exploit? Yeah, you know, man. I mean, hey, look. The Bible said, Bible says, pride goes before downfall. I mean, and so this is this is something as old as our recorded uh, literature and history and stories are. Um, you know, th- this idea that 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 smugness, that arrogance of power, uh, will lead to destruction. Uh, absolutely, and I think it's it's our job, our role, to figure out a way to use that against them, to bait them, to entice them, to get them to act out in ways that bring about their downfall. Most of the folks who are in the Democratic Party in their leadership are the professional professional managerial class, right? So it's a very classist type of attitude. Uh, but then when we did do it, the outrage. So we're just going to smash them. They can't. They won't be able to fight back. We have all this, you know. And then you talk about yeah, the seven billion dollars that the, these people continually fail upwards because there's so many resources. There's so much that they we just got the money. So you don't have to really perform. You just have the money behind you. So, yeah, there's a lot that I think we can utilize to our advantage to bring about uh, their, 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 their downfall because I, I think they will continue to make mistakes. They will continue to further marginalize themselves from um, you know, of communities across the United States. 
uh, and their policies. They certainly um, look if they if, if at any point and other people have said this over and over again. Right. If at any point they were actually going to do anything to help people, it would have been these last two years during the pandemic, during this economic collapse that we're experiencing. You know, they would have done that then. And as other people have said, if we want to know how they're going to act when the climate collapse is fully upon us, it's upon us now, but as it accelerates, they've shown us how they're going to act or act how they did during the pandemic. And, you know, if you have the money to survive, you will. And I think we need to, 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 to make that well understood among our people and our communities and our neighbors. But, yeah, use that arrogance, use that smugness against them. And I think that's our job to figure out how to do that. Rob, do you want to jump in here? Yeah. You know, last week we had a, a caller come in and, and we, I kind of asked them, like, what's your dream, uh, political ticket for, for presidential run in, in 2024? I think that it, it's good that, um, that third parties are running from local elections to running for Congress and all the way up to uh, running for president. So what, what would your ideal Green Party ticket look like? Um, I guess what I, I think there needs to be some big voices, some some charisma that that draws the attention of people who might formerly have said voting's not for me or oh, all politicians mm. are the same. Uh, who do you think would best suit the uh, the Green Party in a, in a 2024 ticket to run against if it's, God forbid, Biden and Trump again? Who would be your your dream ticket? Um, you know, I'm not. Gosh, you know, I don't know the personalities that well. So I'm afraid to say someone who's going to like everyone's going to be like, oh, my God, what are you talking about that person? But I think it needs to be someone who has broken from the Democratic Party. So like a Nina Turner type, I think it needs to be someone who has a ferocity and a spirit to them uh, that uh, is one of righteous anger. Um you know, so I, I think you need those two things, someone who ha- who is making that break and someone who also can very uh, who can who can competently and effectively communicate the righteous anger that so many of us are feeling. I, I think that's that's the person to be looking for. Uh, like I said, Nina Turner comes to mind. I don't know her well enough to know whether or not that's the right person. I just see clips of her and hear things that she says, and I like it, but I don't know her background well enough. Uh, you know, Nina's so I, I, great, I, yeah. but I don't think she's necessarily broken free from the Democratic Party. Yeah, now, if she yeah. did break free from the Democratic Party, uh, it would be another story. But, uh, yeah, I, I love her righteous anger. I think she would be a, a great uh, asset for, for third-party movements, for the Green Party, for um, actually uh, bringing dignity and justice to the people of this country and fighting back against these two corporate parties. But she's kind of doing the teeter-totter. You know, it's, yeah. look, it's, <laughs> leaving the Democratic Party when I left three years ago, it's a hard decision. I mean, I spent my whole life voting for Democrats. I think that that is the biggest hang-up a lot of people have. They just can't quit it because it is so powerful and 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 I, there's this like roadblock that people have. Like mm. it's like I, I hate to say it, but it's like it, I equate it to like being in an abusive relationship and not having the courage to actually leave the person who betrays you over and over again. Because it's not just like the Democrats have stabbed us in the back once or twice. They do this over and over and over. Right. The history of the Democratic Party is a history of co-opting real social movements and watering them down and then destroying them and then taking credit for them. 
And they've done this all the way back from the civil rights and then some. Change has never happened in this country. We didn't get social security because of the Democratic Party. We got it because there were people who were brave enough to get in the streets right. and fight back against both of these corrupt parties. And finally, there was a, there was a little crack and, and FDR listened and, and was pressured enough to actually make change happen. But right. if anyone thinks like this, these kind of vote blue no matter who people, they actually think that like, oh, no, Democrats are the good guys in the story and they will actually fight for. No, 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 no. Democrats have never been the good guys. They've never fought for any policy that benefits the people. They've only fought for policies that benefit the big banks. And the only time they ever passed even a little bit and, and gave us crumbs were when people got in the streets, socialists, communists, uh, people in the labor movement, when they actually fought back against these parties. That's how change happens. That's exactly right. And and the, the system understands that. The two-party system, the establishment, the oligarchs understand that because they're able to, they're, they've been able to insulate the system uh, so that it is, I mean, look, we, we saw what happened with, with the, 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 the Black Lives uh, Matter movement uh, in the, the year after George Floyd, where, what, 25 million of us were on the street, you know, and what came of that, you know? And so that's the whole aspect. I, I, I know we get in this trap of arguing over which is more important when the reality is, is, is all of it's important. That's why I said the, this idea of the body. Right. So that we are out on the streets at the same time we're doing electoralism at the same time we're organizing, doing labor organizing, you know, all those other things. This idea of people not wanting to leave the party is I mean, there's real psychological reasons for that. This is like evolutionary uh, uh, group psychology. Why people I, I was I, I look, I yep. went along with the wars for years, knowing how corrupt, how mor- immoral they were, how criminal they were, how, you know, how. um uh, 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 you know, how counterproductive they were. I went along with that for years because I couldn't break away from the group. I mean, I'm horribly ashamed and re- I regret it. And, you know, I've had issues of suicidality because of the wars, you know, but it's a real thing that keeps these people in. And so maybe, you know, I mean, I, I like that idea of someone breaking from it because it symbolizes that. But maybe the answer is that we have to find someone uh, within uh, the movement who has doesn't have that type of relationship who is uh, uh, always been uh, clear of the of the Democratic Party, uh, you know, and, and, and finding those people and promoting them, um, I, I think, and getting them the, the national attention that they need. And then most importantly, making sure they have the infrastructure, you know, uh, the yeah. ballot access. That That's a big part of it. Whoever runs for the left, are they going to have the ballot access to be on in a majority of states? And that's a real issue. That's one of the ways that the, um, uh, you know, establishment's able to insulate the political system is by denying these movements the ability to have people on the ballot. And, yep. and so that's something we really and then have to, also to figure to suppress out. Suppress them from appearing uh, in televised debates where the majority of, of right. the public finds out about candidates, especially during the presidential cycle. Uh, yeah, very good stuff. Let's go to our next caller, Jorge, and uh, get his input. Jorge, thanks for uh, being on the show again. I see your face. You come every Thank week you, and I appreciate you. Thank you, Ryan. I really appreciate it. Uh, Matt, quick question. Um, okay, so I don't know if you remember right after uh, Road uh, versus Wade, the whole mess, uh, the White House was getting a lot of pressure uh, from everybody. And I remember Biden made a comment like, well, you know, let's try to make a big uh, 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 one-time exception, you know, with the filibuster so we can pass 
uh, we, so we can codify the Robbie weight and also uh, pass the voting rights. My concern with the voting rights bill is that I've been reading that it has some clauses like it's going to be probably impossible for us to get a third party. So my question is, have you heard anything about that? Or, I mean... Yeah, um, there is within the... Thanks, Ori. I appreciate that. Uh, Within the voting rights uh, bill that was brought up last winter, there are... There's like a poison pill in there that effectively um, strangles third-party and independent candidates. It, It sets the... Uh, it sets the bar so high for third party or independent candidates to get uh, matching funds. That's one of yep. the, it does several things, but that's one of it that, you know, there'd be no way that a third party or an independent party could compete in a campaign where each of the main parties are, you know, spending a billion dollars each or whatever it is. So, yeah, there, 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 there's things like that within, within that bill as well. There was something that um, it basically opens up the transfer Right now, there's there's the money, the transfer of money between parties and candidates is is pretty wide open anyway. This just turns, from what I, if I remember it correctly, this just turns the valve to full open where there'd be no restriction, right? And so you then have unrestricted super PACs. Yep. Yep. And then you, so basically, if people don't, right now, someone can go and write like a 600,000, I think $600,000 is the limit, but you can, you can write a $600,000 check to one of the parties right now. You know, I mean, like that you have that ability to well, to a super PAC. You can you can. But to like the actual there's that's why every campaign has like there's, you know, the Joe Biden campaign and then yeah. there's the friends of Joe Biden campaign. And now that the, each candidate can, I think, only take thirty five hundred. But the super PAC can take unlimited unlimited amounts of money. But then they added another thing to help super PACs. I just can't remember what it was, but there were multiple poison pills within the legislation, uh, raising the the threshold to receive matching funds, like you said in the beginning. And this is why myself and and a couple other people. Now, this is important about with the Democrats, because this is, again, a part of the party's history. They called the bill the For the People Act. (laughs) They call it the For the People Act. So they give it a name, just like they called... um, you know, the ACA, the Affordable Health Care Act, <laughs> when really it was for-profit, uh, you know, private insurance that was unaffordable. It was really the Unaffordable Health Care Act. And so what we did is we renamed it and we called it the For the Duopoly Act because right. it's not a voting rights package. It actually, it's what Democrats, they call it a voting rights package and they disguise it to actually give themselves more power and to make it harder for third parties to be viable. Again, this is the history of the Democratic Party. You cannot listen to the speeches they give on CNN or they give on TV when they're trying to pander for your votes. That's when, you know, the Obamas of the world and the judges of the world, they turn up the hope and change to level 100 and, and they get and they use the identity politics to try to put us all in different boxes and say, we got your box. When the truth is, they say that to get our votes. And then as soon as they get power, they stab the very marginalized communities in the back who put them in power. And and that is why we, for, in my opinion, after being in doing this for a very long time and being a Democrat for 18 years of my life, I do believe, and this is controversial, but I believe that the Democratic Party is much more dangerous, dangerous and sinister than the Republican Party because the majority of the electorate is pretty clear about the danger of the Republicans. The Republicans don't hide their corruption very well. They're very just arrogant and, <laughs> and you know, they brag about the wars. They brag about t- cutting taxes for the rich. 
It's the Democrats who kind of hold your hand and say, yeah, we're your friends and vote for us. And then as soon as they have power, they, they use their power to rig the system even more against the very marginalized people who put them in power. And so that is why I, I believe they're they're very dangerous. And I mean, look, I've had experiences in my life when when someone who I know is my enemy, um, you know, has wronged me or has done something really shitty. OK, but I expected it because they're my known foe. But when a friend in my life has have stabbed me in the back or, you know, there's a period in my life where I really struggled with substance abuse and I'm by the grace of, of my higher power sober today for many years. But there was someone who, when I was trying to get healthy and get sober 12 years ago, completely aired all my dirty laundry to the public, mm. completely stabbed me in the back. And that person was supposed to be my friend. I, that was the hardest person. I'm still mad at them for this. I mean, I have forgiven them because um, you know, the, the anger uh, hurts me. It doesn't hurt them. But my point in, in sharing that little story is, is it's, it's the people who are, supposed to be your friends but then they betray you they they hurt you more than the person who you than the enemy that you know is your enemy and so i think that is for me why the democrats are more egregious and and why it's so hard and why i really think they're the big roadblock to us having uh the kind of uh, dignity and justice that we all deserve in this country yeah the idea we have to choose between one and the other it's kind of like do you want to uh wade into the alligator pit or walk into the tiger cage you know, I mean, uh, it, it doesn't make much sense to me to, 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 to have we have, that we have we're forced to make this distinction. Um, yeah. And, you know, I mean, I, I think you can we can properly summarize uh, the Democrats um, a pitch to their constituents for, for quite a while now. Uh, again, going back to the 70s, basically is 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 be happy with the crumbs that you have because the other guys won't give you any. And um, it's true, but what you said exactly, Ryan, they, they pay this lip service, they say they're going to help people, and they simply don't. Or they provide, at best, crumbs while they are ensuring the success and wealth of the very corporations and banks that are crushing people. Um, and the Republicans, yeah, they're not so, uh, they're very transparent. They're not pretending to be anybody's friend. Um, I mean, they do lie to people in the rural areas. Certainly, that's the case. They they, they certainly tell people in rural areas, but they they um, but they're not really offering anything. It, it's more along the lines of of they're just trying to use their own version of red versus blue identity politics for their advantage. But no, it, it's absolutely abhorrent, and this this again comes back to the idea of why we need a multi party democracy. Uh, let's hear from Jonathan. Jonathan, you're up. Hey, how's it going? I good, good. Thank you for calling in. Remind everyone what happened in Iowa, here where I live, a state that went for Obama two times and then went for Trump, even though it was not the case that more people voted for Trump than for Mitt Romney. That's not what happened. Fewer voted for Trump than for Mitt Romney, but nobody shows up for Hillary Clinton. Uh, a corporatist, imperialist, identitarian Hillary Clinton. So there is a 10-point group of people to whom you need to speak directly on issues for them to get to show up at all. And, but, they, but they will. They're not just the non-voter. They're the swing voter. But they're not the swing that swings from one to the other. They swing from one to nowhere. You have to say something to them directly. And most of these people are libertarian-adjacent and they see themselves that way. I'm, I was an agrarian place. It's very obsessed with freedom and uh, 
does not see itself as socialist at all, even though they have no problem taking subsidies for their cornfields and then complaining <laughs> about other people giving yeah. out the government. <laughs> right. But they're starting to get it. You're seeing these people starting to do strip tilling instead of full tilling because they're like, what am I doing to my land that I am going to pass down to my children? Like you're destroying it because you're trying to appease these people who make ethanol and high fructose corn syrup with your quarterly profits of these people. You are being used as a trampoline. All vouchers use people who work for a living as a trampoline off of which the government bounces money into corporate pockets. And so they're anti-government, but it's a good, it's a pretty justified feeling, especially now. Absolutely. But, but the point is there are three to 10 million people like me who think like me, who you can just reach down and pick them up. They're free. You don't have to wrestle them away from anybody. Mm. What you got to do is make a green libertarian party. And that's not as difficult as it sounds because not all of us, I'm not stuck in 2012 with my Ron Paul sign waving it around. I've learned things since then, you know, about, it might be irony. You can tell me if this is an example of irony, that it was at Ron Paul's behest that I go and learn more about money than I think he ever did. It's clear that his son does not understand the difference between fiscal and monetary policy, or he wouldn't be up there complaining about, oh, we spent $200,000 to send a half dozen grad students to Peru to study the mating habits of butterflies. That might sound absurd to somebody, but I don't think it's that absurd. And it's certainly not what's devaluing my money. Mm. And, and you can give them something. And get something back. And the, the trick of that is that you can give them stuff that you don't really want anyway. A really easy example is if you want the wealth tax, which I do now, you give them income tax. It's a tax on high-velocity money anyway. You want to help working people stop taking all their money away. Think about the logic of universal basic income. It's identical to the logic of not doing regressive taxation like sales tax and income tax. It's not taking money from him. It's the same thing as not as giving it to them. It's, the logic is identical. Like who, where it comes from and where it goes is worth looking at. But if you're really going to look at where it comes from, you can do a nominally small wealth tax on people who only make or only have, I should say, because it's not about making, it's about having, it's about only have like assets over $10 million and still destroy more dollars because that's what you're doing when you pay taxes than all the other taxes combined. You can give them quite a lot, and there's already quite a lot that you agree with them on. Libertarians are nominally a very open border compared to normal conservatives. They're pro-choice compared to normal conservatives because it's not the government's business. You know, they're they're pro uh, they're anti-drug war. They want that over. Like you have a shit ton of common ground with these people, and if you can give them even more than they thought, you can get a little bit more back because all you really need is a wealth tax and universal basic services like healthcare. Uh, thank you for your call. Uh, and anti-war, I, the thing I like about libertarians, I disagree with libertarians on economics, but that's a much larger conversation. I, I think that the, the system we have, the, the economic system we have will always end up with uh, the big banks and, and a few billionaires controlling the wealth. That's just well, how the system is designed. It's how the system has resulted. But I, I digress. Did you have a question for um, Matthew? Because uh, you're kind of breaking up as well. You have been for the past minute or two. Uh, 
even if it's not, I will. Oh, just, you are breaking that. up. Sorry. Well, I'm just telling Matt. Okay. He's, he was breaking up. Um, uh, Matthew, do you want to respond to anything you said? I mean, I think, uh, I know you're anti-war. The thing I respect with libertarians is they are against our bloated uh, military budget. Um, I definitely find common ground there. Yeah, no, I, I, and I've had a very good relationship with a number of libertarians for many years uh, because of my anti-war work. And, uh, you know, I've been on their podcasts, their shows. I have like a number of friends. And one of the things that, I have found, you know, I'm on the left and, you know, socialist and everything else. And one of the things that I find with them is that they're supportive of me and I'm supportive of them because even though we disagree and um, we've arrived at where we're at because of our lives experiences, we've arrived at where we're at because of, 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 of things we've been taught, things we've read, et cetera, et cetera. But really, it's our life experience that's telling us, why are we this way? Why, why do I believe this is the right path forward for our political and economic system? And, you know, so having that understanding of each other, that we are genuinely interested in improving the condition of society, although we have a disagreement on how to do that. And in some cases, it's a pretty stark disagreement. I mean, it's a pretty, there's a pretty big gulf between us on a lot of things, but there's also things that we, we certainly have our overlap and share, you know, uh, issues of civil liberties, issues of war. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, my, my libertarian friends, they, they have aneurysms when they hear what the latest amount of subsidies from the federal government is to, co- or to corporations, you know, things like that. So, um, I, I think yep. you can have this this spirit of 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 um, you you can uh, I don't want to say work with them, but certainly the idea of that you're 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 engaged with people who are uh, principled and not opportunists like so many of the Democratic and Republican Party are. That allows for the opportunity them for there to be advancement, um, even if you do have that disagreement. Um, but uh, yeah, well, no, libertarians are what a lot of Democrats don't realize is libertarians are further left on free speech on uh, and right. on uh, on anti-war and anti-imperialism than the Democratic Party. I mean, I've always said that this country would be much better off if uh, we got rid of the Democrats and got rid of the Republicans and we had the Green Party and the Libertarian Party, you know, the Libertarian representing kind of the right and, and the Greens representing the left. I mean, that would I wouldn't fix everything. We, we would still you know, have this kind of predatory capitalist economic system, but there would be a lot more social services. There would be, I mean, there would be a lot less war. Um, and, and this is actually a good transition because I wanted to ask you uh, kind of as we're nearing the end here, uh, you are an anti-war veteran. Uh, can you share with us a little bit about the exper- your experiences in the U.S. military that led you to become uh, an anti-imperialist and kind of oppose the very institution that you used to serve? Yeah, you know, it, it was um, like like I kind of mentioned earlier. Uh, I I went along with it for longer than I should have. Uh, you know, certainly there's there's a lot of reasons for that, and and um, again, I'm ashamed of that. And, and you lie to yourself. You make excuses. You, you 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 even before I went to the Iraq War the first time, I knew that it was uh, uh, it was unwinnable and a mistake. And you know, at that point, by the time I got there in early '04, it was all coming out that everything was built on a lie you know, or lies. So, but, you know, I have this idea that somehow I will be a moral actor uh, within a larger immoral circumstances that I'll be a a moral agent, even though 
uh, it's impossible to do that in something as immoral as uh, uh, as, a, as, a, as a, such an immoral whirlwind as as war. But you know, you lie to yourself. You know, so after my first year there, you, you know, you lie to yourself about well. You know, I'm a mid-level guy at this point, so maybe if I stay in when I'm a senior-level guy, uh, I won't make the same. I won't do the same things that we're doing now. And I heard that all through the '90s when I was in the Marine Corps, from colonels and generals and sergeants major who had been in Vietnam. All these guys, like in the '90s, these these, these guys would these guys who were old enough to have been in Vietnam uh, would say would say things along the lines of. You know, we're never going to make that mistake again. I give you a commitment. You know, I will never do what what the generals did back in the 60s and 70s. And then they went ahead and did it, you know. And so it's this it's this, um, you know, continual disappointment and betrayal. And then you're continually also disappointing and betraying yourself because you're violating your own moral standards. You're violating who you believe you are or who you know you are. And you're taking part in organized murder. And that's essentially what warfare is organized murder. And um, I mean, so it, the break took a very long time for me. Um, you know, it, it took, uh, you know, by the time I get to Afghanistan in 2009 with the State Department, I am morally and intellectually broken. Um, and uh, seeing that the war in Afghanistan was fundamentally no different than the war in Iraq, uh, seeing that the Obama administration was fundamentally no different than the Bush administration, um, then that's when I finally had the the courage to say no more of this and i resigned in protest and that became quite public and you know here i am 12 years later uh but uh it was it was it, it it's you know uh, um the reason why you see so many suicides in combat veterans called moral injury and uh, moral injury exists not just in, in in veterans in the military but all all lines of, of people have moral injury and and it, it's very destructive it is the uh the most traumatic experience that you can encounter as far as i'm know of because it tears away the very pillars of who you are your moral your religious your spiritual foundation is completely destroyed because you did things that violated it and as we are learning more and more that is the primary not the soul but seems to be the primary cause of of combat veteran suicide this moral injury, this idea that you betrayed who you were by taking part again in organized murder. And it doesn't just have to do with the Iraq and Afghan war. We know this in World War II veterans. You know, the, we have evidence of it, a lot of evidence of it in Civil War veterans. So even the guys who are in the, quote, good wars, unquote, suffered from moral injury and killed themselves because of it. So it, 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 that all of that just informs who I try to be as a person now and what I try and do, you know, and this, this idea of, then it further informs kind of my ideas towards society and and government. The idea is that things must be democratically accountable institutions themselves for their own purposes are dangerous. Uh, They're inherently corrupting, but at the same time too, we must do what's necessary to ensure a public good in the public interest. So, you know, that's how I come back to the ideas of democracy, both in government and the workplace, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Do you think that, um, you know, in this country, these endless wars and bloated military budgets, they're kind of sold to the public as somehow being patriotic. Uh, but I'm not quite sure that there's anything to be proud of, uh, of, 
you know, your country waging wars throughout the world uh, to plunder and exploit other countries' natural resources. What does it say, uh, Matthew, what does it say to you, Matthew, about our country that war is seen as patriotic and advocating for peace and cutting the military budget is somehow seen as weak? Because to me, it's the opposite. Uh, you know, advocating for peace and cutting our bloated military budget, that should be patriotic. It, it's a reflection of who we are as a society. Uh, you know, Cornell West says we live at the intersection of might makes right and greed is good. And, uh, you know, a member of Veterans for Peace and Veterans for Peace said, said for a long time that uh, the wars overseas are mirrors of our wars here at home. And something I was on today, someone reminded us that, you know, the United States has the first has the largest military budget in the world by far. China yep. is a pretty distant second. And then the third biggest military budget in the world is the U.S. police force budget. And so yep. we see the same thing as well in our own domestic society. What we do overseas, again, is a mirror of what we do here at home. So we have these massive police budgets. We have these, ma- these militarized police forces that just as the U.S. military abroad is meant to exploit and bring money back to the United States, the same thing can be said of our domestic police forces. While it's it's not, you know, an apples to apples comparison, you can understand it, though, in a sense that we require these police forces in order to maintain a hierarchy, in order to maintain a caste yep. system that ensures yep. that, you know, the oligarchs remain at the top and that they receive the largest of, of everything this country has to offer. And that idea of violence that might makes right and greed is good, that's been the way this country has been since before it was a country. And, you know, that's reflected in both our military budgets and our police budgets by, you know, the, the idea that we have uh, more, we have between 800 and 1,000 military bases around the world. We don't even know how many. Um, you know, the rest of the world has about 25 or 30 combined. And the fact that we have the world's largest prison system in the world, uh, that's not a coincidence. And you can make those, make those comparisons all, all, all down the line. No, I mean, we're absolutely our government is not just at war uh, against the, the world and against other nations. It's also waging war against its own people. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and, and predominantly uh, when we talk about the, the war against our own people, it's uh, these bloated police budgets. They come down on poor mm-hmm. and working class and predominantly black and brown people. And so, right. you know, we're seeing just this repetition of exploitation and racism and violence and it's all directed at um you know the most vulnerable people in society in order to enrich uh the the ruling class who already has more wealth than they ever need i mean that what what one of my biggest awakenings of all of this is a few you know maybe four years ago when i realized when you just see how how in bed and both political parties are with with the billionaire class and with the giant corporations. And then you see how how they're passing laws and, and passing health care that all that all is to benefit, uh, you know, their 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 donors. And then you think, like, wait a second, like the, the, the people who these big corporations and, and these billionaires, they don't need any more help. They are they're already hoarding all of the resources. Mm-hmm. They already have more wealth than anyone should ever have in a lifetime. And yet now they have two parties that are also doing their bidding. Like it's insane to me. Like the one person the government should work for if it's an actual government is for poor and working class people. And so it, our government doesn't because it's an oligarchy. And so I mean it's it's but it's insane to me when you just strip it down in very common sense terms like 
these people don't need any more help. They already have everything. And they, and, and, but they want to, because their wealth is built on exploitation. So they have to have the police and they have to have these two corporate parties to keep the rigged system intact because that that's what their wealth is built on. It's built on exploiting labor and it's built on exploiting marginalized people. And uh, I, I think that they've insulated themselves with their wealth and power. And then you turn on the TV and CNN and, and Fox News never talks about any of the consequences of our decrepit capitalist system. You hear the story about the one person who made it, who's at the top of the system, and they're talking about how it works. Well, I'm sorry, it's not working for the 140 million Americans who are poor or low income. And it's not working for uh, black people when the wealth gap is now today in America, the, the racial wealth gap is wider today than it was back in the civil rights movement. Right, like, right. That is how what we're what we're dealing with. And so it just, you know, it it's nice to have conversations like these. It's nice to know that there's someone running for office and running for the United States Senate, one of the most corrupt institutions in the world who actually wants to have a conversation about truth and accountability and justice and and dignity and and start to write laws that would turn this ship around. Um, Rob, do you have uh, any final questions for uh, Matthew? Because if not, I think this has been great and we'll let him get out of here. Yeah, Matthew, I just want to say thank you for, for running and thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Where can our listeners find out more information about about your campaign, mm-hmm. how they can help uh, either donating their time or money or, or how can we help get you elected? Yeah, thanks so much, Rob and Ryan. This has been really great. Um, yeah, website is MatthewHoForSenate.org. Uh, last name is spelled H-O-H, so MatthewHoForSenate.org. And uh, please, uh, yeah, please go to the website, visit it. You can find out more about the campaign, where we stand on issues, et cetera. But really what we need are, is people's donations. I hate saying that. You know, I'm a big rah-rah, get money out of politics guy, but that's the reality of what we're dealing with here. And we are in this David versus Goliath fight. We are up against Leviathan. Uh, we are fighting against both the state of North Carolina and the Democratic Party, and we need people's help. This is one of the one of the strategies against us is to exhaust us, is to exhaust all our resources, whether it be people, money, time. And so we need people's help on the website. Please feel free to, to please also if you can volunteer your time. Please do. We can use help from all across the country. Um, and then please encourage other people uh, to donate and support us as well. And you can find me on Twitter at Matthew P as in Patrick Ho. So Matthew P Ho, uh, you can follow me there. Fantastic. And I will make sure when I share uh, the podcast out uh, that to include the link to your campaign website. I encourage uh, all of our listeners to get involved, uh, volunteer. If you have a few bucks, pitch in. If not, volunteer. You know, you can phone bank now from anywhere um, mm-hmm. and, and spread the word. Uh, if, if you live in North Carolina, tell your friends, tell your family. Uh, Matthew, if, if, they, if, the, if your uh, lawsuit doesn't get, if they don't, if, if they don't uh, allow you to be on the ballot, can people still write your name in? Uh, come to uh, we, no, we're, well, we, people can, but in North Carolina, you need to be an official writing candidate. Uh, and you have to collect 500 signatures to do so, which would have been no problem for us to do. But that would not have that would not have worked with the timeline of our lawsuit to run as a write in. Um, we considered it. Gotcha. But, uh, yeah, just it's just not 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 practical for us in terms of what we're trying to accomplish. But people certainly could, um, you know, but uh, but no, we, we're confident we're going to win. Anyone who looks at what we're dealing with here objectively says this is, you know, this is out of line and atrocious. 
so uh, we expect to be on the ballot in November. Uh, fantastic. And Matthew, thank you for uh, for running and thank you for, I'll be honest, it's been lonely. The fight has been a little bit lonely. Um, you know, a, a lot of people that I was in the trenches with, um, you know, they always kind of get suckered back into the Democratic Party. So it's it's been really nice to see uh, an independent uh, grassroots voice for change who's fighting back against both corrupt parties. Uh, I really appreciate your energy and, and pre- appreciate you just putting yourself out there. I know it's hard, um, but you are doing the right thing. And I really um, I hope you stay in this fight uh, for the for the long term. And I hope we can connect again. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Thanks, guys, for this. I appreciate the support. I appreciate all the support on Twitter. You got, you've been great, you know, retweeting our stuff. So thank you for that. It's very helpful. It really is. So, and, and thanks everyone for joining and listening to this. You bet. Yep. Have a great uh, weekend, everyone. And uh, you take care now, Matthew. All right. All right. Bye bye. And we'll catch thanks, you next man. week with another episode of Unruly. Have a, have a good weekend, Rob. Have a good weekend, Jorge. And Charlie and and Amanda, thank you for calling in again. I, I love to see the same people calling in every week. That's awesome. All right, guys, have a great weekend.